Good morning. My name is Adam, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, and it's great to have you with us today as we come to the end of the sermon series that we've been in for the last few weeks called Half Truths, Exploring Some Common Claims. What we've been doing for the last few weeks is we've been looking at some common cultural mantras. We've been putting them under the microscope to examine what they're saying to us and what God's Word has to say about them. So you might remember back in week one, we looked at the claim, do whatever makes you happy. And we discovered that true and lasting happiness is found only in the happy God who made you and loves you. Week two, we looked at the claim, don't let anyone tell you what to do. We discovered true and lasting freedom is found only in allowing Jesus to tell us what to do. Last week, we explored the very common mantra, be true to yourself. And we found that a secure and satisfying identity is found only in the God who made us, loves us, and defines us. Today, we are going to be digging into the the common cultural mantra, don't judge me, don't judge me. Now, I want to warn you right up front that this sermon might be a little bit like going to the dentist. (laughs) Very attractive advertisement for a sermon, isn't it? A little bit uncomfortable, maybe a little bit painful, but ultimately, I think it's going to be good for us. Now, over the course of this series, I've been sharing with you a song that kind of summarizes each cultural mantra. So back in week one, when we talked about happiness, I shared with you the song Happy by Pharrell Williams. Some of you just grimaced again because you remembered me singing it. Last week, when we looked at identity, I shared the song with you, Born This Way by Lady Gaga. I think Ben missed a trick in week two when he looked at the claim, don't let anyone tell you what to do. Obviously, the song that kind of summarizes this mantra is Another Brick in the Wall by Pink Floyd. Remember how it goes? We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. No dark sarcasm in the classroom. Teachers, leave them kids alone. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Now, sadly, I don't have a song to share with you today. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) But I do have a character I'd like to introduce you to. A character from one of my favourite TV shows ever, The Office. Meet Angela. Angela works at Dunder Mifflin, a, a paper company in Scranton, Pennsylvania. She's the head of the accounting department, which is why she looks so fun and bubbly and happy. And I can say that because I used to be an accountant. She's a safety officer. She loves to sing. She also really loves cats, and she lives with several of them. Angela is also cold, harsh, and judgmental. She constantly makes complaints to the human resources departments about her colleagues. She constantly makes condescending remarks about all of her colleagues. And when she makes a mistake... Rather than own up to it, she shifts the blame to someone else, usually with an insult. Angela is condescending and judgmental. Angela is also a Christian, or at least she presents herself as one. 
She says that if she was ever stranded on a deserted island, the two books she would take with her would be The Bible and The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. She says she'd also take The Da Vinci Code, but only so she could burn it and use it as fuel to start a fire. She says in another episode, she says, I don't back down. My sister and I used to be best friends and we haven't spoken in 16 years over some disagreement I don't even remember. Angela presents herself as this prim, proper Christian, but in reality, she is hypocritical, unforgiving, and judgmental. And the reason that the show kind of presents her in this way is because this is how people often think about Christians. In fact, there was a study done a few years ago in Australia by a social researcher named Mark McCrindle. He surveyed 1,000 ordinary, everyday Aussies, and he asked them a whole lot of different questions about faith and, and Christianity including the question, what puts you off the Christian faith? What repels you about Christianity? What, what stops you from wanting to explore it and investigate it further? And he found a few different things. Number one the reason was church abuse, that the scandals that have engulfed the church recently. 57% of people responded that way. Number two was hypocrisy, 47% of people. Number three, religious wars, 45%. And then number four was judging others, 43%. One of the main reasons that people are repelled by Christianity is the perception that Christians are harsh and judgmental, that they're narrow-minded, critical, and harsh. And this is the perception of almost 50% of Aussies. I mean, one in two people believe that if they were to walk through these doors, they would have come into this building, they would have spent some time among us as a Christian community, they believe that they would be judged. Now, whatever you think about those statistics, let's be honest enough to admit that there is some truth to them, that some Christians can be overly harsh, overly critical, and overly judgmental. Maybe you've had an experience like that with a particular Christian or, or, or at a particular church. You felt judged, you felt marginalized, you felt dismissed. Maybe you would admit that you have felt the pull yourself towards being the one who does the judging. Maybe you'd admit that you've felt that pull towards pride and, and fault-finding. I've got to admit that this is an area of my life where I need the ongoing help of God's Spirit. I can far too easily feel that pull towards pride, towards fault-finding, towards being judgmental. Maybe you can relate. Whatever the case may be, whether we're the ones feeling judged or whether we're the ones feeling like the judge, Jesus has something important to say to us today. Something very important to say to us through this passage that we just heard from Matthew chapter 7. This is how Jesus begins in verse 1. This is what he says. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Now, if John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible, then surely this is probably a close second. I mean, there are people that have never read the Bible before, but they're able to quote this verse to you. And for good reason. I mean, it seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Jesus says, do not judge. Perhaps we can kind of end the sermon here. Let's sing a song, pray a prayer, and go have coffee. Some of you look way too excited about that. Now, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but we can't do that just yet. 
Because when Jesus says, do not judge, he does not mean do not judge ever. Do not make any judgments about anything at all. And we know this is true because of the words and the example of Jesus himself. Now, Jesus was not judgmental, but Jesus made judgments. He constantly said, this is true and this is false. This is good and this is evil. Even in the Sermon on the Mount itself, this sermon that Jesus gave in Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus constantly says things like, think this way, not that way. Live like this, not like this. You've heard this said, well, I say this to you. Even a little bit later in in chapter 7, Jesus will say, walk on the narrow road, not the wide road. He'll say, build your life on the rock, not on the sand. He'll say things like, listen to true teachers, not false teachers. See, Jesus made judgments. And he did this for our good. Like I said last week, he didn't come along just to pat us on the back and say, keep doing what you're doing. He came and he said, no, don't go that way. That leads to death. Go this way. This leads to life. Jesus made judgments. And this means, as his followers, we too are called to make judgments. Not to be judgmental, but rather to be discerning. To say, this is good, this is right, and this is not. We even kind of discover this in the passage from Matthew 7, in the the last verse which we read, which is kind of a strange verse where Jesus talks about dogs and pigs and pearls. That's a little bit of a weird way to end, but Jesus' point is very simple. We need to be discerning. See, there are some people, they will respond to the message of God's grace, the message of God's kingdom, a little bit like the way pigs respond if you were to throw them some pearls. They're not really going to care. In fact, it might make them angry because they can't eat them and they're just going to trample over them. And you see, the message of God's kingdom, it's not just that some people don't believe it, not interested in it, it actually makes some people angry and antagonistic. And Jesus is saying you have to be discerning. You can't keep butting your head against the wall forever. At some point, you might have to walk away. In other words, there's going to be times when we need to make some difficult judgments to be discerning. This is what we discover in other parts of the Bible as well. For example, Hebrews 5 verse 14 says about the mature believer that they have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 12 says to us, test everything. Hold fast what is good. In other words, as mature believers, we need to be able to discern between what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. The Bible also says that we need to be able to discern between what is true and what is false, what lines up with the truth of God's Word and, and what doesn't. So, for example, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, we read this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. In other words, there is space for a Christian to be discerning, to make judgments, to say, this is true, this is false, this is good, this is evil. But Jesus has something very important to say about the way that we do this, about how we exercise discernment and judgment. And this is exactly Jesus' point in this passage here in Matthew chapter 7, because when he says to us, do not judge, he is not saying, do not judge ever. 
He is saying, do not judge hastily, harshly, hypocritically. He's not saying don't make judgments. He's saying don't be judgmental. He's talking about the attitude that we have when we evaluate and judge others and other things. Because the truth is, I think we'd all admit that we have a tendency to be harsh and unfair. That when we judge and evaluate others, we have a tendency to assume the worst, to magnify others' mistakes, to even sometimes enjoy their failings. And I think it's because the truth is it makes us feel better about us. We, we, we think to ourselves, well, I might not be perfect, but I'm not like them. I manage my money better than they do. My children are better behaved than their children. I don't get as angry as, as that person does. I'm not as showy as, as, as that person is, and on and on it goes. We tend to evaluate others harshly because it makes us feel better about us. And this is the type of attitude that Jesus is condemning here. In fact, here's the way John Stott puts it. He puts it very succinctly, very brilliantly, as he always does. He says, the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, to not ever make any judgments, to not ever be discerning. No, no, that's what he's saying. But rather, a plea to be generous. Jesus does not tell us to cease to be human by suspending our critical powers, but to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God by setting ourselves up as judges. And see, that right there is the heart of the problem. When we put ourselves in the judgment seat, when we make ourselves judge over others, we are occupying God's position. We are sitting in God's seat, a seat that we were not meant to sit in and a seat that we are not qualified to sit in. It's kind of like when I was a kid and I got to sit in the pilot's seat of, in the cockpit of a plane. Now I was sitting in the pilot's seat, but I was not qualified to sit in that seat, to fly that plane. In fact, if they let me fly that plane, I would have hurt a lot of people. And that's what Jesus is saying here. This is what it means, this is what happens when we judge others, when we occupy God's seat. This is the same thing that Paul wrote to the church in Rome a church that was really rife with division and disunity, fighting with one another, arguing with one another. And here's what he says to them. He says, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? Why do you look down on them? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. He says the same thing about himself in 1 Corinthians 4. In, in the church in Corinth, there were some people attacking him, maligning him. And this is what he says in response. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Paul's point is this. We are not God. We can't discern motives. We can't see the heart. We need to step off the judgment seat and we need to put down the gavel. Now let me, let's think about a practical example of this, what this might look like. Think about, for instance, raising our hands in church when we're singing. Fairly innocuous thing, right? But I wonder how many of us have thought to ourselves, well, look at them raising their hands. Do they really mean it? 
I know what they've done. They're such a show-off. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe some of us have thought, well, they never raise their hands. They're so lukewarm. They're not passionate like I am. This kind of judgmental attitude is damaging. Or I think of a story that was told by Craig Rochelle. I heard it many years ago, but it's always stuck with me. He talks about the time when he was a young pastor in a small church and he was standing out the front of the church building on the steps with one of the elders. And they were kind of welcoming people to church as as they arrived. And there was a car that pulled into the parking lot that they didn't recognize and out stepped a young lady and it was was kind of obvious that it was her first time. She she was uncomfortable, she looked a bit anxious and, and she was also not dressed like everyone else. And as she came up to the, the front steps, Craig says that the elder stepped forward, almost as if to intercept her, and said this to the young lady. She said, young lady, we dress our best for God in this place. And she looked up, her eyes filled with tears, she ran back to her car, she drove out, and Craig says, as far as he knows, she never came back. Now, it breaks your heart, doesn't it? And that's exactly the type of attitude that Jesus is condemning here. This looking down on others because of externals. We don't know the heart. We don't know motives. We're not God and we're not the judge. And if we have started to pick up the gavel a little bit too regularly lately, then Jesus gives us a very strong warning in verse 2. That's what he goes on to say. It says, from the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's a confronting reality. I mean, it literally says, with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure that you measure, you will be measured. In other words, if we are constantly, unfairly, and harshly judgmental of others, then we might actually find ourselves being judged by greater strictness by God. And so we need to be very careful about the way that we treat others. We need to be cautious of the way that we talk about others. With the measure you use, it will be used on you. Now, to drive this point home, Jesus gives us an illustration in verses 3 to 5. He tells a, a story, a parable, which is kind of funny on the surface, but it makes a very serious point. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Now imagine for a moment, if you will, that there's two men, two guys working in a sawmill. Let's call them Jim and Bob. Now, both Jim and Bob have accidents. Jim isn't wearing his safety glasses, so he ends up with a bit of sawdust in his eye. It's really uncomfortable, he's rubbing his eye, he's rinsing it, he's trying to get it out, but but it's just not working. Bob, on the other hand, is cutting up a huge, big log, but it gets jammed on the machine and the log jumps off, knocks Bob over and pins him to the ground. He has this massive log over his face. So imagine you've got Bob lying on the ground, big log over his face, and then you hear this muffled voice, Jim, you got a speck of sawdust in your eye. I can see it, it looks terrible, it's red, it's puffy. Let me help you out with that. That just looks awful. I can just see that you need some help there, Jim. Bob, with this big log over his face. Now, it's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? But it's ridiculous on purpose. And we shouldn't laugh too loudly because Jesus is saying, hey, you and I do the same thing. 
we very quickly see the sawdust in the eyes of others, but we don't see the plank in our own eye. We very quickly recognise the faults of others, but are often oblivious to our own. You might say we magnify the sins of others, but we minimise our own. And in fact, apparently, there's even a, a name for this. People have done some study into this, and apparently it's called better-than-average syndrome. Yeah, it's the phenomenon where most people rate themselves as better-than-average in most things. So I don't have the st statistics for Australia, but apparently in the UK, get this, 98% of the population think they have an above-average IQ. 95% of the population think they have above-average looks. 98% of people think they're in the top 50% of nicest people. And, and apparently, no matter what trait you ask about, the result is the same. We tend to think we're better than what we really are. Now, I, have to say, I hate to say it, but if the statistics are similar in Australia, that means almost half of us are dumber, uglier, and nastier than we think. <laughs> Welcome to church, where we like to make you feel good. Here's the point. We have a tendency to accuse others and to excuse ourselves. To magnify the sin of others, but to minimize our own. You, know, you see, we might say about others, well, you should hear what they did. I can't believe what they said. I can't believe what they did. But when it comes to us, we tend to think, well, you don't know the whole story. You know, you don't know what's happened to me. That's not who I am. It was just one time tend to accuse others, but excuse ourselves. You know, to get really uncomfortable, to get out the dentist's drill for a moment, we, we tend to do this in a lot of different ways. We do it with our words. So we'll say something like, I just can't believe what they did. And we're using our very words to gossip. We'll do it when it comes to sexuality. So we might marginalize, mock, minimize someone who, who is experiencing same-sex attraction, and yet at the same time, we might be sleeping with our girlfriend or, or looking at pornography. We might even do it when it comes to money. We see a believer who's obviously wealthy and we just kind of assume and judge them as being greedy. And yet we might not actually be giving any of our money away. We judge and accuse others and we tend to pardon and excuse ourselves. And again, I think the reason we do this is because it makes us feel better about ourselves. It, it takes the pressure off us. It distracts us from our own sin. And that's actually the real danger of judging. We're always looking at others and we never take time to look in the mirror at ourselves. And that's why Jesus says here, before you take a look at others, look in the mirror. Verse 5, he says, You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, here's what this might look like practically. Here's something I, I heard a, another pastor suggest this week, and I think it's a really good rule. As a rule, when you're speaking to someone, when you're engaging with someone else, just assume that you're the greatest sinner. Now, if you're anything like me, it shouldn't be too hard to do. I mean, you know what you think, you know what you say, you know what you do. And so when you're speaking with someone, just assume that you're the greatest sinner. Assume that you've, you've got some logs that you need to deal with before you go pointing out everything else. Now, it, it's not that we don't ever correct, restore, warn our brothers and sisters, our fellow Christians. 
In fact, that's exactly Jesus' point. He says we need to take the log out of our own eye so that we can help our brother or sister with their speck. We are to warn and to correct and and to uh, encourage one another, to say, brother, I love you, I care about you, but I see the direction where this is leading and I don't think it's wise and I don't think it's going to lead to Jesus and to life. We're to do that for one another. We're to be willing to hear that from one another. Same thing we read in Galatians chapter 6, for example, verse 1. Paul writes and says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, now he doesn't say if someone commits a sin, we all commit sin. He's saying if someone is caught, they're stuck, that they can't move forward, they don't know how to, to get out. What are we to do? You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Now I want you to notice here who Paul is addressing. He's writing to brothers and sisters. He's writing to the church, to the people of God. He's saying this is what Christians are to do for Christians. We are to watch out for one another. We are to help one another. And the truth is, this is where our attention and our focus should be. Not necessarily on all those who are outside the church. Our focus is to be on those who are inside the church. In fact, here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he's addressing a particularly grievous case of sin in the Corinthian church, and he's writing about church discipline, and this is what he writes. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. In other words, it's not our job to police the world. It's our job to share the gospel with the world. It's our job to be salt and light in the world. It's our job to be faithful to Jesus for the sake of the world. This is the same thing Jesus said a little bit earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. One of the ways that we are witnesses to Jesus is through our love for one another and through our good deeds for one another. Same thing Peter writes to the the churches around Turkey. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that those, simply those who don't know God, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And you know, this is what Angela from the office got wrong. She expected her co-workers who did not know Jesus to live like Jesus, even though she wasn't living that way herself. When instead, she should have shown her co-workers the difference that Jesus makes the way that Jesus transforms our lives, and she should have shared with them all that Jesus had done. Because what Jesus has done for us, it changes everything, especially when it comes to judging others, because here's the truth, you and I, we deserve the judgment of God for our sin, for our evil, for our rebellion, and instead, we receive grace from God through the finished work of Christ on the cross. You see, the judge was judged in our place. The judge was judged in our place. He received a sentence that he did not deserve so we could receive a gift that we have not earned. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin, Jesus Christ, 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in Jesus we might stand before God forgiven and accepted. That is the verdict over your life. And when that verdict begins to become real to you, when it begins to flow into you, it will then start to flow out of you. And it will begin to affect the way that you look at others, the way you treat others, and the way you talk about others. It means you'll be willing to come alongside your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and you'll be willing to warn, to help, to restore, and to do it gently. And it also means that you won't look down on non-Christians, those who don't know Jesus, and expect them to live like Jesus. But instead, you'll devote yourselves to showing them the difference Jesus makes and to telling them what Jesus has done. We begin to show others the same grace that God has shown to us and we begin to share with them the same love that we have received. And you know what? This is how we change the perception that Christians are harsh and unforgiving and judgmental. We show people, we share with people that true and lasting life is found only in Jesus. And we do it together. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word cuts to the very marrow. That's a little bit like a dentist's drill. It can be uncomfortable, it can be painful, but it's for our good. And so Lord, some of us here this morning, we need to repent of where we've placed ourselves in your seat, where we've picked up your gavel. And Lord, I want to begin with that myself. Lord, I'm sorry for the way in which I've been overly critical, overly harsh, overly judgmental. Lord, help me, help all of us to walk in humility, to walk in gentleness, to show and to share the love that you've given to us, to others. Lord, others of us have perhaps felt excluded and judged by by Christians in the past, and we just pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would heal those wounds. You would help us to see that Jesus, the judge, was judged in our place. And that now we can stand before you forgiven, accepted, and that that verdict would flow into us so that it might flow out of us in the way that we treat one another. Lord, help us to do this and help us to do it together for the good of one another and for the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.